Hi there, Megan Thompson here with Megan Thompson Coaching and today we are going to speak about the pathological demand avoidance profile of autism compared to the highly sensitive temperament trait. And I know that based on the length of this podcast, this message will not be pervasively in depth. <laughs> Uh, and all-encompassing. And the focus today is to help you think differently about raising your sensitive child who experiences big emotions and start to wonder what types of labels are empowering compared to being disempowering for your family. All right, let's dive in. Hello, and welcome to How to Parent Your Highly Sensitive Child Like a Ninja. I'm your host, Megan Thompson, licensed clinical professional counselor and registered play therapist supervisor. We at MTC teach parents how to eliminate the daily meltdown and shutdown cycle for your sensitive children and teens. Highly sensitive children make up 15 to 20% of the population, according to research that has been gathered for over a century. And this podcast answers one question. How can you raise emotionally intelligent children? Stop walking on eggshells and help your child express their needs safely without punishments, yelling, or coddling. If you want to know the answer, you're in the right place. Here at MTC, we help parents of highly sensitive kids eliminate daily meltdowns in as little as eight weeks by raising sensitively resilient children. Now, what does that mean? That means that we don't eliminate meltdowns by, you know, pushing your kid into a box and requiring them to do as you say, even if you, you're, you know, and you're in charge, right? We help parents foster emotional intelligence, which is the capacity to understand your emotions, how big they are, decrease them yourself, and teach their children to creatively solve problems like coming up with solutions to regular everyday issues, brushing your teeth, uh, following through on a task, getting your homework done, talking to friends in social situations, and navigating those relationships safely. We teach parents how to do this because this is what the research demonstrates for the temperament trait for highly sensitive children who have a natural disposition towards being thoughtful and sensitive, wise, deep thinkers, right? Uh, they notice lots of details in the world and when calm, especially if they're in a meltdown cycle, uh, when calm, they're much more capable of communicating their needs and naming all kinds of factors in the environment that they were considering when they were struggling and experiencing overwhelm. They're very self-aware when they have the opportunity and they're not overwhelmed by the emotional intensity. And if your child's been having daily meltdowns, uh, hitting, kicking, screaming, yelling, throwing things, um, and you've been struggling as a parent, even if you're using gentle parenting, then it is important to listen up because this is one thing that we see so, so often with our clients. And uh, I, I have a high level overview for you today to start to shift your beliefs about what's possible for your family. Now, if your child is refusing and shutting down instead of having meltdowns or in addition to having meltdowns, then that is part of the meltdown cycle. Even if meltdowns are happening daily, but you see that your child is shutting down or refusing on a daily basis, then listen up because it's very possible that you might be down multiple Google and Facebook channel uh, um, rabbit holes to try to figure out um, what is going on for your child. And you very well might have come into contact with the, the term pathological demand avoidance. Now, pathological demand avoidance is a term that is stemming from the 
um, from a researcher in the United Kingdom. And what's important to uh, highlight here is that that researcher works in the United Kingdom. And the United Kingdom is 10 years behind the United States mental health system, mental health research, and uh, mental health culture, right? So raising emotionally intelligent children and fostering emotional intelligence is much more of a pervasive value in the United States culture. And as a result, in the United States, the research has been more thorough, more prolific, and more effective than the research in the UK. Now, does that mean that there are uh, there aren't pockets of well-versed people in the United in the United Kingdom about emotional intelligence. No, that does not. You know, this is not a straw man argument. What we're talking about is noticing that culturally speaking, the mental health world and the emotional intelligence world is much more effective in the United States compared to the United Kingdom. That is really important when we're talking about the history of the PDA label because the PDA label is only a little under a decade old, a little around a decade old, whereas this, the temperament trait for highly sensitive children and highly sensitive people is over a century old. So newfangled terms with less research and a culture developed in a culture of uh, research and mental health that is behind the United States has taken uh, you know, has set fire in the United States because of social media, right? There's reels, there's um, short form video that a lot of parents are learning from. And a lot of therapists are learning from, sadly, I've just seen it all over the internet. And um, teaching parents based on this fad pop psychology information that happened to spread widely because of social media. Now, does some research help and and has some research been um, more thoroughly shared wide and, and help parents solve problems and help people in the medical world solve problems? Absolutely. So I'm not saying that we should all stick in a box and and keep um, and, you know, gatekeep this information, psychological intelligence information if to professionals only. That's literally the opposite of what I teach. I teach parents to be the therapeutic change agent of their child so their child can change without outsourcing this to therapy, which takes years, right? Um, it's ineffective and inefficient. So stay out of the black and white with me, please. <laughs> what I think is important is for us to pay attention to um, highlighting what we talk about, what we teach our clients here at MTC, what is possible for your child, and then what is ineffective. Where, do you, where does your child get stuck if you use a label that is based on behaviors that your child is demonstrating rather than their initial disposition, right? So how they experience the world is different than how they respond to the world. How they respond to the world is, is based on stress in the environment and how they're raised, right? So this nature-nurture experience. When you add nurture to the nature of a child, their personality develops. And a personality is the behavior that you see and the actions that your child takes and the thoughts that they share with the outside world and the thoughts that they get stuck on in their own mind, right? So this is important because when we look at the, the pathological demand avoidance um, uh, personality type or, or, or a subsection of, of what's considered autism, 
what uh, what the what the researchers are demonstrating is that somebody who is telling you that they can't, they won't, no way, even if they want to engage in a uh, demand, this is lifelong. They're telling you, and they're telling you that this is um, it needs to be more widely accepted and quote unquote allowed. And I have a different perspective based on all of the work that we've done with thousands of clients, hundreds in the coaching company for the last, you know, close to seven years at this point that we've been running an online business. And yet PDA just popped on the scene about a year or two ago in social media. All right. So here's the deal. This is, this is important when you're raising a child who experiences big emotions and has a nervous system that is responding to life as if it's on fire. When you're seeing inconsistencies, what's important for you to notice is that that is likely due to your child's environment, to their nervous system overload, right? Rather than to their their uh, regulated temperament, right? So temperament, disposition, basically the same term. How your child initially experiences the the uh, the world, how they were born, their natural tendencies, right? So for example, if you haven't already figured out, my natural tem- tendency is to be assertive. Uh, one would per- uh, can perceive that to be dominant. My dominance is not coming from a sense of insecurity or judgment. It's coming from a lot of certainty and experience. However, um, when I was in my 20s, early 20s, or even beyond that, I definitely was much less emotionally intelligent and was certainly emotionally immature and uh, would respond to the world in, in extremes. I would either be passive or I would be uh, responding to the world with more like pressured intensity, right? So in, in undergrad, I received feedback that I was an intense person. <laughs> Passionate, yes. Uh, intense, yes. And uh, effective now, for sure. Um, I don't need other people to do what I want them to do or to believe me or to agree with me. And that's because I've, I've engaged in a lot of personal development skills over the years and um, have, have healed some, um, some ineffective skill sets myself over the years, working with lots of professionals, as well as studying and, and you know, getting a de- degree in this stuff early in my career, but then working with um, effective coaches throughout my life's lifetime as well. Now, um, What's important to notice is that my temperament doesn't change. I'm still very outcome-oriented, still very driven personality, uh, still very effective at at reaching the outcomes that I set for myself, both in business as well as uh, with our clients, as well as in my personal life. And so um, that's not going to change. I'm not going to stop being uh, driven and assertive. I will, however, change my delivery, which impacts how my personality is demonstrated, right? So that's what is important for us to ensure that we're talking about because a child who is feeling very overwhelmed by an experience can regulate that emotion, can decrease the anxiety or doubt or fear or worry or overwhelm, dissipate it like sand in an hourglass, and then have the initial urge to say no, disappear, and then say, okay, and I need help. That is what we teach our clients to help their children do. And their children do it. So uh, I think it's a grand disservice to parents 
that the uh, that the, the PDA profile has gotten traction in today's society because autism exists, right? I'm not here to tell you that it doesn't. And it's also true that the temperament of a sensitive, thoughtful child who is easily overstimulated when they don't have emotion regulation skills and they are not taught in a matched way to their temperament creates a child who says can't won't no way who is easily overwhelmed by the world and experiences a heck of a lot more anxiety and nervousness and um, uh, a lack of resiliency in the world right so we've we've spent some time this year i went through why defiance is actually a demonstration of a lack of resiliency so is demand avoidance right avoiding what's expected of you is an anxiety response Anxiety stems not just from the brain and how you think about the problems. In fact, children don't often think before they act. That is literally in, um, an inappropriate assumption of how their brain works and in, in, in a non-scientific manner of how their brain works. It's also true that the brain is miraculous and can change and can be rewired. And so it's while children respond with can't and won't no way if they're emotionally uncomfortable and feeling uh, un incapable, and as a result, have low self-esteem, what's very important to understand is that we can't swing to the other end of the, the, the pendulum here and make that mean that children are incapable and will continuously avoid demands and are going to struggle for the rest of their lives. That is wildly inappropriate for the potential of your child. And to stick them in a box like that I think is a grand disservice and quite frankly, I, I feel fired up to say that it is unethical of professionals to say that children will stay like that for the rest of their lives just because they haven't been able to help people get out of it. I mean, it's like telling somebody that, that um, their stage one breast cancer is um, unhealable and, and, and will never change, right? Because you're calling it stage one breast cancer and you've never healed it yourself as the, as the doctor who's seeing the patient, right? How terrible is that? Just because you've never learned and, and, and developed a process that actually works doesn't mean you should um, drastically you know, create shortcomings for your patient, right? So what's important to highlight is that when somebody is experiencing an immune deficiency like stage one cancer, and don't get me wrong, I've experienced uh, lots of death due to cancer in my family. So this is not meant to be a, um, uh, an, an, an insensitive conversation, right? Um, I, I have experienced a lot in my life. And as a result, I, I speak about it without, um, uh, without being triggered by it. So when we're talking about a, a doctor who's diagnosing a very healable process, but they don't know how to heal it themselves, and then as a result, giving a death sentence to somebody, um, that's unethical, right? So why is it un not unethical for a professional who's never figured out how to shift a person's personality um, to say that that personality is, un is fixed and uh, unchangeable? To me, that makes zero sense. That makes zero sense. Because you, how you experience the world and how you perceive yourself as capable in the world can absolutely change when you have skills and supports it, support networks who understand you. As an adult, we all know that that's true. We know that our perspectives can change when we have emotion regulation skills and we have a hope for the future and we have a purpose in life. That's the difference between growth mindset and fixed mindset. So why are we working 
with or, or listening as parents, why are we listening to people, professionals, who are telling us that your child's personality is fixed? If you want your child to have a growth mindset, then you need to teach them to their strengths. You need to notice that sensitive children notice lots of details in the world. They have many, many skills, and they are much more capable of being effective with those with those skills to show up in, in life and, and manage them if they can also manage their emotions and they feel capable and they have high self-esteem. What leads to children having low self-esteem? The fact that their parents don't believe in them. The fact that their parents create a uh, shortcoming. The fact that their parents set them up for uh, a lack of success, for sure, right? You can bet your bippy that if that if um, that if I believed my kid couldn't do something, she wouldn't be able to do it. If I talked to her about that, if I spoke to her in a way that she was incapable, then she would follow suit. I want to give an example. All right, I personally uh, have a fear of falling. Now, I would love to go skydiving one day. That is on my bucket list. Uh, I will never go bungee jumping. No, not on my bucket list. Okay, so I have a fear of falling, not a fear of flying or a fear of heights. <laughs> I fly all the time. Um, I've been flying, uh, you know, for, for many years in my adulthood. And so I enjoy being up high in the sky. I don't enjoy falling um, when I'm attached to things, actually, it's very specific fear of mine. <laughs> I'm, and, and it's also true that my daughter is, um, uh, part spider monkey. I believe she's extremely phys physically adept. She climbs our uh, stone fireplace. So I take a rock climbing instead <laughs> because <laughs> that's something that she enjoys. And it's a skill set that I don't really have. I wouldn't necessarily call myself very athletic. Um, heavy weightlifting is my, and dancing are, are my uh, exercise skill sets of, of choice. Climbing is not my forte, but we, you know, we go and we do it. And because she's en enjoying it and she likes to do it with me. Now, I took her to one of those um, indoor sensory overload extravaganzas, like, you know, go big or go home. Um, it has like rock climbing and ball pits and trampoline park and, and all of that. I'm, I'm not going to name the name, but it's, it's, um, it's a chain. It's probably nationwide. And uh, you guys know she's uh, a sensitive soul. She's such a deep feeler and, and such a, um, uh, a wise soul. And this is noticed by adults, by pediatrician, her caregivers, nannies in the past, teachers, etc. Um, not just me, right? Um, and I'm not shouting from the rooftops my specialty to everybody that I talk to. So uh, is outside observation as well as inside observation. She's, she um, is, is very intelligent um, from an emotional standpoint as well and gifted, I would say, on that front for sure. And then also I, I do believe that she has a lot of intellectual capacity and um, is advanced in certain ways for her age. She's also physically adept. Like I said, um, can climb all kinds of stuff. All right. So because of her temperament, I know that it is so important that she maintains an identity of a resilient child, that she stays focused on persisting. If at first you don't succeed, try, try again, because she can trend towards perfectionism. And now we help clients who have uh, their children have debilitating perfectionism. They immediately throw things out. Uh, when they make a mistake, they chuck it, they, they flip 
chairs, they, you know, they do all kinds of stuff when they when they don't get it right right away, or they're frozen and they can't do it right away because they don't they're worried they're they're not going to get it right the first time. Getting it right the first time is a um, characteristic of the highly sensitive temperament trait is a desire to do something really, really well and a high desire for efficiency as well because highly sensitive people, when they have uh, effective emotion management skills and and are thriving, they see the big picture and the small picture at the same time. So they have very good follow through and they're really, really good at what they put their minds to. And um, they don't usually leave a lot of holes, right? So this is where that um, when I say that highly sensitive people become people pleasing, perfectionistic workaholics at best, it's because their bosses notice that they're really, really good at what they do. And they tend to be the, you know, they, they started in the um, in school, um, the one who's all the all the work got passed off to them because they didn't have emotion regulation boundaries. And it was difficult, they wanted to please other people, right? So they were the ones um, you this might be you, uh, they were the ones who were finishing the project late at night and wanting to get the A and it didn't matter if the peers were holding their, you know, um, holding their end of the bargain. And then we see, and you know, Elaine Aaron talks a lot about this in her adult books as well. We see this showing up in the workplace. You can be easily burnt out because you're the one who's relied upon more often than not because you're very good at what you do. And as a result, you get more projects underappreciated as well as uh, poor boundaries from the boss expecting you to do all of the things because you do it the best. And as a result, uh, you end up burning out, right? So this is where uh, the highly sensitive trait without emotion regulation skills and, and the capacity for resilience and to set effective boundaries can really set you up for failure in adulthood. Again, what are all those skills? Those are all skills that are taught by parents. So because I know that, because I know that, as a um, as an expert in the field, I am raising my child with the skills that I teach my my uh, clients. Right? We teach our clients this all the time. That your child needs to be able to feel like they can thrive. People who are thriving are thriving in all avenues: socially, demonstrating extroversion and friendliness, uh, creative problem solving, negotiation, and compromise. They're thriving um, for children. That means academically that they have a love for learning, they're curious, they're internally motivated to get their work done and to continue to learn rather than task oriented. Uh, Do I have to? Okay, fine. Can I just do this one piece, right? That's an external motivation looking for your approval to get the job done or just doing it because they have to. That's not going to lead to a love for learning. They are um, inquisitive and they engage in problem solving and they contribute to the environment. So happy to do chores and and um, to contribute to the family because they're acting on empathy. They are collective and collaborative and they feel uh, socially connected and therefore they want to give back. And then they are also uh, contributing to other people's emotions by not adding to the equation and they're emotionally intelligent, right? So they are um, able to pace themselves when they feel stressed out and slow down, ask for help, advocate for their needs personally, as well as take care of their own needs. Uh, they're not experiencing learned helplessness. Okay, so this is a successful adult. A successful child does the same stuff. So child who is thriving in the world is reaching their potential in every avenue. Friends, school, uh, education, um, uh, self-education, community, and family. All right, those are the, the five qualities that we talk about when we're raising resilient, thriving children. They are resilient in all avenues of life, not just one, right? 
So um, this is important, right? So again, what's necessary is uh, my kiddo asked me to do a zip line. I said, no thanks, because at that place, um, I've done the zip line before and I really banged my shins, it's painful. So it's not just uh, scary for me, <laughs> it's also physically painful and I, you know, mama's got boundaries. I said, no, sweetheart, I'm not gonna do that. Um, you can go and I'll be here cheering you on and, and, and notice that, right? Uh, but I'm not going to do that because the way that it's set up, it's it's designed for children. So um, I I just don't have the um, the skill set to not hit myself <laughs> and, and curl into a little ball while on a zip line. Because again, I'm you know on those in those situations, I'm really focusing on breathing and and uh, in a little bit of fight or flight myself because it's scary. Okay, for me now. Um, I did say that I would do, there's a, there's like a ropes course where you're up in the air. So think like, um, tree trekking kind of thing. Okay. So I did that with her instead. And as leaders, we go first, she wanted me to go first. So I went first and believe me when I tell you I was petrified because I don't like that stuff. And it's also true that I am not going to be a barrier to my child and her skill set. She loved it. She loved it. She was, you know, following close clip behind me. Um, and then I let her pass me and I geared up to go to the next level and then walk myself back to that thing and get back to solid ground <laughs> and stable ground. And I did it too, right? But I, I did not tell her in any way, shape or form. Are you sure you don't really want to do that? Are you sure? Do you think you could do it by yourself? I don't know. I mean, let's go do the bounce house or the trampoline or, or, uh, laser tag. I'm really good at laser tag. I'm happy to you know, play with you there, right? I did not discourage my child from her interests and her skill sets and her uh, ability to stretch her skill set. Because if I did, I knew that would impact her self-esteem. I knew that would impact her self-confidence. I knew that would impact her identity of somebody who's a problem solver and an effective thrill seeker, right? Very good and safe and focused on safety as well as um, you know, engaging in all of life's opportunities. So I did not let fear overcome me. And I did it. I'm not, um, I'm not going to sign up to do it again <laughs> anytime soon. But if my kid needs me to do it in order to feel confident that I will do it for her. Because that's what good parents do, right? We do that, right? And so here's the deal. I just ask you to, to contemplate today. Um, why would we tell ourselves that our children are, are, are avoiding interests or things they know that are helpful for them and that that's a fixed experience? And I ask you to ask yourself, how are you contributing to the environment that your child is learning in, in an effective way? And how are you contributing in an ineffective way? And if your child is struggling and you can't, won't, no way, sometimes that means that's because you're walking on eggshells. And I say this to our clients and our prospective clients all the time. If you're walking on eggshells around your kid, your kid is getting a subtle message from you that they are incapable because you are overperforming for them, which will turn into enabling and coddling. It's also true that if you're engaging in force, even when you're reactive, and I know you're doing the very best you can, but if you don't have a process and a system to raise a resilient child, you will do this reactively. And that means that if you're using force through empty threats or actual threats, you know, if you don't do this, then I'm going to take it away with anger in your voice and, and overwhelm in your voice or pressured speech, then you are telling your child that you are in charge of their behaviors and they're not. And that in of itself tells you that you don't believe that they can. 
either they can't do it quickly or they can't do it at all. And um, as much as you don't like it, that's what's happening. And it's contributing to this belief that your kid is fixed in their belief that they can't solve problems. And um, beliefs aren't fixed. Beliefs are just thoughts that we tell ourselves over and over and over again. So I encourage you to change the way that you hear this message and change the way that you perceive your child. If you want our help to do that, there's lots of factors to change this dynamic. One of them is shifting out of your, um, your, your methods of communication. All right, I go, go over to meganhunsacoaching.com backslash talk and book a call with our team to help your child thrive. And first, uh, break out of the meltdown cycle as a family. All right, I'll talk to you soon. Bye now. Thank you for joining me on this episode of How to Parent Your Highly Sensitive Child Like a Ninja. We release a brand new episode every week, so be sure to click subscribe. If you like what you've heard and you're interested in seeing if you're a fit to work with us at MTC, here's what I want you to do next. Head on over to meganthompsoncoaching.com backslash call and book an appointment with our team. We'll get on the phone for about 60 minutes and we'll get you clarity on where you're stuck in parenting your sensitive child or teen what your goals are for supporting your child's development. And if we can help you, we'll get you started on knowing exactly what to do to eliminate that meltdown cycle. Eliminating the daily meltdown cycle does not happen by itself. You need expert guidance to make it happen. And we've helped hundreds of clients from all over the world end that cycle in as little as eight weeks. So to see if we can help you do the same, head on over to meganthompsoncoaching.com backslash call. I'm Megan Thompson. And we look forward to speaking to you soon.